The world is in fact inexhaustible, and if we are alive, we are part of that inexhaustibility. To speak one true word is to begin to re-enter that knowledge. Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers podcast. In this episode, we'll be hearing from the great Jane Hirschfield. And some of our 2017 debut poets, including Kaveh Akbar and Lely Long Soldier. Plus readings by Steve Almond and Jay Baron Nicorvo. And so much more. So stick around. right now. Mm-hmm. I just finished the reread of Middlesex. Great book. Great book. Greater on the second read for me. Really? Mm-hmm. I, what, what books have you read more than once? Not very many. No. Not either. very many. I don't reread very often. I read Already Dead by Dennis Johnson. Mm. My wife has read that multiple times. I have read Jesus' Son twice. Yes. I reread that after he died. Crime and Punishment I read twice. Wow, I have not read that once. I need to read that. I don't that. know why I read that twice, actually, but did you, I did. Did you like it? Yeah. You must have. Yeah. I went um, through a big Russian Russian novel phase. I read Lolita twice, at least, if not three times. Okay. Oh, I read um, Revolutionary Road twice. Oh, God, that's a good book. Mm-hmm. Not, not recently. I haven't read it, but, but I read oh. it twice in the last 15 years. Really? Yeah. I, it was so hard. It was so hard to read. Yeah. I think that's why I wanted to read it again, yeah. because I was like, I don't know. It's a little bit traumatizing when you're first reading it, yeah. I, I found. Absolutely. It's because it's just dark. I wanted to see, you know, if you read something really dark again, you're able to see a little more light in it, maybe, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, or it hits different notes than it did. Yeah. Part of the reason I decided to reread Middlesex was because I read it shortly after it came out. Um, so I read The Virgin Suicides and loved it. Mm-hmm. So I read it, and I was probably only like 22, 23, something Mm -hmm. like that. And I remember liking it, but I also have like no recollection of that time in my life. Mm. It's just like I... But I think that that's why... I think that you're actually in a perfect position to enjoy a book when there's not as much going on in your own life that would Mm. stand out. Mm -hmm. I've tried to read books when I've I've been in a really either busy part of my life or when there's a lot of dramatic things happening Mm -hmm. and I can't I can't get into a book in the same way that I can you know when the landscape's a little more simple that's interesting which is probably why you know you read books on vacation because your mind arguably you are (laughs) in a situation (laughs) less stressed out (laughs) right yeah you know well what was interesting about this reread for me is that um I read the same copy that I did when I was 20 whatever so I had underlined parts in the book yeah, and like had made little margin yeah, notes. And yeah. I was like, how weird that that was the thing that I underlined yeah. or like, and I was trying to get into my head space, you know, like why did I underline that? Yeah. And they were things that felt 
so like not wasn't a question it was like yeah, yeah of course right like I, I underlined um I now I don't remember it verbatim but it was something like sex is uh, is assigned at birth gender is learned mm-hmm. something like that something mm-hmm. like gender is how you present yourself in mm-hmm. the world and I had underlined that and like put a little asterisk by it and I was mm-hmm. like was that like a novel was that a novel idea to me at 20 something I don't yeah. think it would be but maybe it was you know yeah I don't uh, mark up books as much as I used to. Me either. Why really. is that? Well, I was thinking about that because, because you know, because I was reading this old copy, and I think for me anyway, it was I was in college mm-hmm. when I read it, and I think yeah, it sort of trained. I guess college sort of trains you to highlight, yeah, and underline, and, and make notes. Right? I was studying English, and I was reading a lot of books, and I think that that I don't think I read that for a class, mm-hmm. but I was definitely like doing the thing where yeah. I was like you know, closely reading, maybe just read with a pencil in my hands, yeah. which I don't do. No. I've, I've loaned books to people that I read in college mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I was like horrified yeah. by the margin notes that I made and like yeah. remains of the day and was like, please, yeah, please pay no attention right. to those margin notes because it's super embarrassing. <laughs> Like his silence speaks volumes or something. It was like, like really dumb, really dumb. Uh, like, but that's that's sweet though. <laughs> Maybe not that bad, but like pretty bad. Yeah, pretty bad. I often think that we should have uh, reading sabbaticals. Totally. You know, just take off a couple of days to read a book. Can we? Can Maybe we? Maybe we should institute can we make that, that happen here. The Poets Runners Magazine reading sabbatical. I mean, I, I'm sure we could, like, you know, put a big, uh, good enough argument in. Like, we listen, we need to read a lot of books. You know what? In order to decide what to cover. You don't know what's going to come of that. I realize that I also recently, um, circling back to the rereading, mm-hmm. there are, you know, I was thinking specifically about novels, mm-hmm. but in general practice, I always return to a couple essay collections. Uh-huh. And those are Joanne Beard's The Boys of My Youth and Rebecca Solnit's A Field Guide to Getting Lost. Mm -hmm. Those are like my two essay Bibles. So Mm -hmm. whenever I travel and feel like I might get any writing done, Mm -hmm. or even when I know that I won't, I just bring them along. One one of those two always comes with me. I read uh, Field Guide to Getting Lost first when I went to Iceland a couple years ago. Oh. That was pretty great. It would be interesting to read it again now just to see what memories of that trip would come up. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I did a lot of just sort of wandering into, not wilderness exactly, but just wandering into a sort of an open natural space and reading. Yeah. And I, had, I had a lot of opportunity to do that, which was such a gift. Yeah. But it's interesting. Why do you think uh, essay collections you return to more? I mean, what I find about essays are, what I find fascinating isn't just the sort of um, material that's covered in the sort of epiphanies that arise or mm-hmm. however you want to put it. But I guess when, when an essay is really well done, you can sort of see the, the turns that mm-hmm. the author is taking. You can mm-hmm. see some of the decisions right. that they're making, which also is why essays can totally fail yeah. miserably. <laughs> like you can really tell when, when it's working yes. and when, when it's not, Yes, which we've, we've discussed in terms yeah. of, you know, when we're considering essays for the magazine. Right. But, um, do you think that that's why you return to well, them? Well, I mean, it, f- on the one hand, it's because I write essays, and so mm-hmm. that I I turn to essays f- 
for inspiration when mm-hmm. I want to write. Mm-hmm. So if I just need to like a little jog, a creative burst, I'll pick up one of those two essay collections probably, or maybe something else. Like depends on what I'm writing. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, when I'm reading for enjoyment, I read novels. When I'm reading to work, I read essays. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, poetry is like that. Yeah, of course. I often turn to poetry if I want to be inspired. Do you have specific poetry collections you go back to? There's so many. I just yeah. sort of pull one off the shelf. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, the, the debut poets that we have uh, mm-hmm. actually in this this new issue, um, all of those are inspiring. Just just to just to sort of randomly open one up and, and read a poem, Yeah. Um, which is also what I find about that, the debut poets roundup that we do. There's just so much. It's such a rich yeah. field of inspiration. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, there's so many ideas there. Totally. So. And speaking of those debut poets, uh, we asked them all to read from their new books, and we are going to hear some of those poems right now. I'm Kava Akbar, and I'm going to read a poem from my book, Calling a Wolf a Wolf. This is called Do You Speak Persian? Some days we can see Venus in mid-afternoon. Then at night, stars separated by billions of miles. Light traveling years to die in the back of an eye. Is there a vocabulary for this? One to make dailiness amplify and not diminish wonder. I've been so careless with the words I already have. I don't remember how to say home in my first language or lonely or light. I remember only the Lambrat Teng I miss you and Shabache. Good night. How is school going, Kavajun? The Lambrat Teng Shode. Are you still drinking? Shabache. For so long, every step I've taken has been from one tongue to another to order the world. I need, you need, he. She, it, needs, the rest left to a hungry jackal in the back of my brain. Right now, our moon looks like a pale cabbage rose. The Lambrat Teng Shode. We are forever folding into the night. Shabache. Hi, my name is Eve Ewing, and these are a few poems from my debut book, Electric Arches. Columbus Hospital. The first stone is the hardest, which is why they don't use hands anymore. Too much. The push of the granite on the pads of the fingers. Too much like the push of a match on the side of the dollar store box when the phosphorus has all gone out of it. The tinder has all gone out of its heart and the red is scratched with brown such that you rub and scrape, but the fire never comes. It hurts too much, that fruitless scrape. So they don't use their hands anymore. 
No, the croaking chain does a man's job. Wrecking balls don't get arthritis or cry or show up on site with lunches that their wives made, bleary-eyed, standing in worn housecoats in the darkness. The dynamite never says, but my uncle died here in this hospital and I still smell the ammonia and see the misshapen pound cake while the tremor spreads and the walls come down. The Discount Mega Mall in Memoriam For you, I trace the letters of my name in the air with my pinky like a gold necklace, like a signature on a grain of rice in a little jar. Eve, the night before, like a dusk, like the end of things, beloved. Our good friend Steve Ullman is always up for a good argument, wouldn't you say? I would say that. He has a new book coming out in April 2018, Bad Stories, What the Hell Just Happened to Our Country. And in the past, he's written for us about the problem of entitlement among writing students. He also wrote an argument against the necessity of literary agents, as well as a pretty critical look at self-publishing. I remember way back in 2006, we published a series of reports titled Fear and Loathing on the Book Tour that he wrote along with Juliana Baggett. Well, in this issue, Steve tackles a frequent criticism we see in book reviews and snarky online comments, that a fictional character is unlikable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he goes on to discuss a pretty infamous example of that criticism of unlikable characters involving Claire Massoud and Jennifer Weiner. Um, then explores characters like Humbert Humbert in Lolita, Captain Ahab in Moby Dick, and even Jesus Christ in the Bible. That's right. It's a really great article, and you can read it in its entirety on our website, pw.org. And here is Steve Almond reading the first section of that article, The Darkness Within, in Praise of the Unlikable. Last summer, I wrote a review of Who is Rich, the new novel by Matthew Clam. The book is narrated by a man named Rich Fisher, a self-loathing husband and father who conducts a brief and anguished affair with an equally unhappy infidel. Shortly after I turned in my review, I heard the book discussed on the radio. The segment opened on an odd note. Rich is a hard man to like, the host began. I sat back in astonishment. The notion hadn't even occurred to me. But a quick survey of pre-publication reviews revealed that this was, in fact, the consensus view. Rich was whiny, selfish, unsympathetic. These complaints, it should be noted, weren't generally directed at his adultery, about which he is so racked with guilt that he attempts to kill himself, twice, No, his central offense is that he articulates the misery of monogamy and parenthood with such tender precision. He's hard to like, in other words, because he makes the reader feel uncomfortable. And yet when I survey the books that inspired me to quit journalism and take up fiction two decades ago, every single one features protagonists who are hard to like in the exact same way. Birds of America by Laurie Moore, The Lover, by Margaret Dura, Airships by Barry Hanna, Jesus' Son by Dennis Johnson, The Stories of Flannery O'Connor. 
My predilection for destructive and discomforting characters arose in part from my years as an investigative reporter, which I spent tracking con men and corrupt cops, shady developers, and sexual deviants. In my reporting, the central danger was detection by the authorities. In literature, the danger was self-revelation. The question was why people messed up their lives and, when they got going, the lives of those around them. This question began with the characters, but it extended to the readers. Spending time with folks who were morally flawed and ruthlessly candid, who had thrown all manner of caution to the wind, was thrilling specifically because they enacted my own repressed urges. I didn't just want to rubberneck their misdeeds. I felt implicated by them. As I turned all this over in my mind, I began to realize why I'd found the scolding critiques of Rich Fisher so vexing. They weren't just sanctimonious or shallow. There was something cowardly in them, a mindset that positioned fiction as a place we go to have our virtues affirmed rather than having the confused and wounded parts of ourselves exposed. Jane Hirschfield is in the new issue. We love Jane Hirschfield. We do. She is the author of eight poetry collections, including most recently The Beauty, published in 2015. That same year, she published Ten Windows, How Great Poems Transform the World. In this issue's special section on inspiration, she writes about strategies for reconnecting to writing after a long silence. That's right. And this piece came about because Michael Bourne interviewed Jane for his essay in this issue, A New Path to the Waterfall, and learned that in 1996, Jane endured a year-long creative silence. She used that experience to come up with seven ideas for reigniting the creative process. We asked her to read that for us, and we're going to listen to that right now. This is Jane Hirschfield reading my piece, uh, Reconnecting to Inspiration After a Silence, Seven Possible Strategies. One, become an open door. This can mean different things at different times. It might mean clear your calendar of other obligations, even if only for an hour or two or a day or two a week. It might mean find the courage to say, even as privately as to a piece of paper, what is in you to say. It might mean, don't be afraid to write badly. It might mean, welcome the silence. Think of silence as your ally. Leaving behind old habits of thought and feeling can make a space through which something new and unexpected might happen. Two, remind yourself why it is you wanted to write in the first place. That might be done by revisiting work by others you find awakening and electrifying or disturbing in useful ways, the way disturbed soil can become receptive ground for new seeds. It might be done by going back to your own earlier work and voice. 3. Translate or revise. 
To translate a poem you love from another language is a way to keep your relationship to word shaping awake. It lets you write in collaboration with an inspiration already given. Revising your own work is the same. You don't need to come up with something completely new. To take a poem that isn't working and to find, with absence, freshened eyes and mind, some way to bring it to awakeness and discovery is as great a happiness for me as writing something new. 4. Search. If you were a person able to write to outside prompts, there are many books of ideas and websites with prompts, including Poets and Writers Magazine and PW.org. The suggestion to try writing a sonnet or ten haiku a day for a week or the suggestion to take up a certain subject or grammatical strategy can be all that's needed. Here are two ideas. Write a poem that begins by asking an unanswerable question. Write a poem on a subject you cannot imagine could make a good poem. But far more interesting is to find your own prompt, to go through the day listening, to ask each thing you see or hear or read if there might be the seed of a poem in it. That in itself is a refocusing of the psyche toward the possibility of poem-making. Another way of saying this is, Reset your intention toward recognizing the poem waiting to be found. 5. Say anything. Free writing, free associating, and keeping a journal are all ways to move from silence into words. The first poem I wrote after a recent silence of some month's duration had that as its originating title, Say Anything. That may or may not be its title if I keep the poem and publish it in a more formal way, but it was how I moved from having nothing in me to say to having something. And once words were on the page, I could begin to revise them. Say anything is another version of William Stafford's famous advice. There's no such thing as writer's block. You only need to lower your standards. Six, throw the dice. The arbitrary form or word or start can be useful. Open the dictionary, telling yourself you will choose the third word down from the top of the page as your opening word or subject. Allow yourself to cheat, but only a little if the fifth word is what wants to leap into your hand. Enter the Dada-esque procedure, John Cage's permeability to accident. Every time a poet writes in rhyme, the first word sound is a throwing of the dice. What answers will be meanings sieve made wider, not narrower, by an accident of music. 7. Begin where you are. A poem about not writing is still a poem. One example, Jane Kenyon's poem carrying that title, Not Writing. Another, Dorian Locke's Dust a poem about exhaustion. The world is in fact inexhaustible, and if we are alive, we are part of that inexhaustibility. To speak one true word is to begin to re-enter that knowledge.
we have a new installment of Why We Write. It's by Jay Baron Nicorvo, who is a poet and a novelist. He's written for us in the past, but this piece is a little different. It's a very personal essay that deals with the relationship between writing and post-traumatic stress disorder, which Jay suffers from. And he writes very honestly and openly about why. It's the first time he's written about this experience, um, and it's a really powerful piece. And actually, it's, it's fascinating on a scientific level as well. Uh, but it can be a little hard to read. Right. So much so that I wanted to make sure to talk to him about it. Uh, he and I had a really good conversation. He's a he's a great guy. And as always, we had a really good editorial back and forth on this. Uh, he assured me that he was ready to explore these issues. Uh, he's been grappling with them for a long time now. And he actually wanted to read the piece for us as well. So you can find the entire piece online, as well as a recording of him reading it. And we're going to listen to the first couple sections right now. The unwilling suspension of disbelief. Nature is as well adapted to our weakness as to our strength. Henry David Thoreau. Like most writers, I consider myself reasonably self-aware. I do believe the unexamined life is worth living, but it's not a life I'd care to live, at least not as an adult. Yet I'd managed to work on a novel nearly every day for five years, and it never occurred to me that the emotional hardships The traumas I was running my characters through were so plainly and painfully my own. About a month before a publisher acquired my first novel, The Standard Grand, a novel that concerns a large cast of characters, civilians and veterans, fighting through trauma and its aftermath, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Which came first, the writing about traumatic stress or the traumatic stress? It's an insincere question, me being flippant, a way to delay, yet again and for just a little while longer, writing something I've never before written, not without the guise of fiction or the elision of verse. Writing trauma and reading trauma induces trauma in the traumatized. You may take this as your trigger warning, but I've found that this induction, coupled with the proper care, can also help us live with rather than be done in by our traumas. So here goes. Having grown up poor, in poverty's requisite deficit of security, I've got trauma to spare. The longest lasting and most stress-inducing arises from a time when I was around six years old. That's when my years-long molestation at the hands of my babysitter began. The chronic sexual abuse, my chronic sexual abuse, was hard enough. Worse was the way I was forced to keep the secret of it, first in the face of violent threats and then in simple, brutal shame. There, I did it. And you know what? I don't feel one bit better. I even feel somewhat worse, and from experience I know that the feeling will carry over into the next days and weeks, at least. But the hardest part, for me, has simply been getting to this point, this very goddamn paragraph, and it's taken me only 35 years from that formative moment of drama. There is a character in my novel who's something of a bizarro me, a me had my mom not moved us out of that abusive Jersey Shore town and down to Florida when I was 10. In creating this character, I was trying to imagine what would have happened had I spent my entire childhood in the same neighborhood as my molester, who was a minor at the time. 
The alternate reality I kept coming back to was that I would have enlisted, something I nearly did on two occasions anyway, to get out from under the long shadow of my intimate victimhood. So my novelized not-me, Ray Tyro, is a veteran, but a vet who's somewhat compromised. He's spent more time in a security contractor than a soldier. He's a mercenary, a population with little representation in our war literature, and I lent him my molestation mostly as I remember it. Foisting my sexual abuse onto one of my characters helped me to experience my trauma but at a level of remove and with a little less stress. Very literally, I rewrote the narrative of my trauma, reclaiming some small measure of control over the single most defining and damaging moment of my life. Novel writing has by no means saved me, but it has allowed me to reach a guiding hand, tentative, into the past to help me shake free that helpless boy still pinned all these years later under a teenage boy trusted with my care. How much must I labor to signify what's real? Really, I am five feet, ten inches. Really, I sleep on the right side of the bed. Really, I wake after eight hours and my eyes hang as slate gray squares. Really, I am beluga. Really, I climb the backs of languages ride them into exhaustion. Maybe I pull the reins when I mean go. Maybe kick their sides when I want down. Does it matter? I am Lila Beluga. I want off. Let loose from the impulse to note. Beware, a horse isn't a reference to my heritage. That was Laylee Long Soldier, another one of our debut poets, reading from her book, Whereas, which was published by Grey Wolf Press and was a finalist for the National Book Award this year. And you can hear all 10 of our debut poets reading from their books at pw.org. And I think that's it for this episode. Tune in next time when we will be talking about writer's retreats, where big books were born. In the meantime... Uh, keep those reviews coming on iTunes. We've gotten some really some really nice reviews. Yeah, which are just uh, really appreciated. Yeah. Um, we've we've been called intelligent and elegant. Which I think is the only time in my life that the word elegant has been used to describe yeah. anything that I've made. Yeah. So I don't think they're calling us elegant. No, no. I think they're calling not. the podcast elegant. Yeah. I'll take it. Um, but my favorite review uh, of the new ones is by Citizen Coco, who calls us 
groovy and satisfying. Uh, Citizen Coco writes, podcasts are my drug of choice when I'm driving. And I can really groove on some ampersand when it's just me in the road. Yes. <laughs> but drug of choice while driving. I hope that's the only drug <laughs> that anyone uses while driving. Except, I guess, caffeine or, I mean, nicotine if you must. Yeah, but. you know, all three would be fine. Ampersand. I never thought. I never thought that ampersand would be a drug of choice while driving. I can. I can advocate for that. I can promote uh, ampersand as drug of choice because it's it's that groovy. Use it. <laughs> um, so thank you for those. Yes. Um, also, we've been talking. Yes, and um, you know, uh, if you have a question for us, um, whether it's about the magazine or about the podcast or something completely different. It could be about anything. Publishing your book. Finding a writer's retreat. Finding an agent. Anything. anything. Or about how the magazine comes together or the podcast, how we do this podcast, whatever it is. Any burning question. Uh, don't be shy. Send us an email. Ampersand at pw.org. And um, we'll take a look at those and, and we'll try to, we'll choose a couple and, and we'll read them next, next episode and we'll do our best to, to answer them. Yeah. So tune in next time. To Ampersand, the Poets and Writers Podcast. Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Falabino. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, Black Ant, Asura, Juanitos, Broke for Free, and Chris Zabriskie. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including the full essays by Steve Almond and J. Baron Nicorvo, plus interviews and audio recordings from all 10 of this year's debut poets at pw.org forward slash ampersand.